For many people around the world, January 1st offers an opportunity to make a fresh start with a new year. But we bet you didn't know that over the last 4,000 years, New Year's wasn't always celebrated on the 1st of January. The original New Year's celebration, the massive Babylonian religious festival of Akitu, was held every year around the spring equinox. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar introduced a new calendar that was synced to the sun instead of the moon, officially moving New Year's celebrations from March 1st to January 1st. In the Middle Ages, the Christian Church did away with many of the ancient Roman festivals because of their pagan roots. As a result, New Year's was celebrated on various dates throughout medieval Europe. Finally, in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII overhauled the calendar system again. The Gregorian calendar, which we still use today, restored January 1st as New Year's Day. Even today, some countries and cultures follow a lunar, not solar calendar and hold their New Year's celebrations at different times of the year. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and the first day of Muharram, the start of the Islamic calendar year, are both celebrated in the fall. And the Chinese New Year, which lasts for a whole month, begins in late January or early February. New Year's traditions also vary from country to country. In Spain, people eat 12 grapes in the seconds leading up to midnight. Other cultures also eat special foods for New Year's. Greeks eat ring-shaped cakes with silver or gold coins baked inside. In China, a dumpling represents hope for an auspicious New Year. And in Japan, long buckwheat noodles symbolize long life. Since 1904, crowds have packed New York's Times Square for one of the most famous New Year's traditions of all, the dropping of the ball. At midnight, hundreds of thousands of people enjoy the mesmerizing kaleidoscopic effect with nearly 16 million vivid colors and billions of patterns. From champagne and fireworks to resolutions and fresh starts, New Year's has always been many things to many people. And it has a long and colorful history that we bet you didn't know. Hey, working like a woman, it's Laura Explorer. It's rare and in life in general to find people that you can listen to, that you can relate to. I look forward to calling into your station soon when I have guts to actually talk about some stuff. Uh, you brought up a lot of great topics, so I'm really intrigued and I love the, the people that are calling into your station. So this is great and please keep up this great work and I look forward to the next one. Hello, Working Like a Woman. This is D-Souls Production. I was listening to your content. I was like, wow, uh, I love the content about the healthcare and repeating history. Keep going down the same road and getting the same results. You know what the definition of that is? Insanity. Hey Ronnie, it's Gigi from Bright Beautiful Worlds. Ever since you called into my station, I've been racking my brains about what I could share. Working like a woman. That's cool, that is really cool. Peace, love, and light.
Hi there, it's Dr. Get A Headspace here. Here's a message from Ronnie from Working Like A Woman. Um, your last call-in uh, really, really touched me. It it really did. And um, of course, I'm more than happy to um, now and again, you know, call in and and, and, and give out of, of my stories for days. Um, but also, you know, I, I just look forward to hearing your content. I feel like I'm stalking you and your husband, but boy, you guys are really um, Fermians and Bozons. Oh my. I mean, I'm learning all kinds of new stuff and I appreciate it. And I mean that sincerely. Yeah, it's it's groovy what you guys are doing. I, I was always that nice drunk when I was a drinker. Okay, thanks so much. And thanks for teaching me all kinds of new stuff today, you guys. I appreciate it, sincerely. Ronnie, working like a woman. I love your page and all the content that you put out. Um, it's a very empowerful woman. Good morning, working like a woman. Ronnie, hi, Barbara KB calling in. Well, I'm so glad you're starting this station here where women come and share their stories and discussings. This is very nice. There are a number of really strong, powerful women here at Anchor, and we discuss and talk amongst ourselves. So thanks for putting a station together um, to do that. Um, And thanks for calling in and, and asking me to share my story. Oh, my story as a woman, where to begin? This episode of D News is brought to you by the Toyota Prius. Let's lead the way. People get bubbly around the end of the year, or during weddings, or on their birthdays, or really any time because champagne seems to be everywhere now. What's up with that? Hey friends, thanks for watching D News. I'm Trace. From the end of November until early January, that's a great time for sparkling wine sales. Traditionally, champagne, which is the most famous type of sparkling wine, sees sales peaking around the holidays, especially those related to romance and celebration, like New Year or Valentine's Day. There are also peaks at Christmas and Thanksgiving, during wedding season, and of course, every Sunday when we have brunch at my house. Bubbly beverages are super popular, but who decided that bubbles meant pleasure? It seems kind of weird if you step back from it all and you think about it, right? Carbonated water was created for sailors in 1767 by an English chemist to mimic the effervescent mineral waters of Europe, but became popular around the whole continent after the French Revolution as a holy water replacement for secular rituals. Bubbly beverages like sparkling wine contain bubbles because of yeast microorganisms, which ferment the liquids by eating the sugars and pooping out alcohol and carbon dioxide gas. True Champagne from the Champagne region of France is notoriously finicky to create. They want to get just the right mixture of bubbles, sugars, and sweetness. Once it reaches the perfect balance, the vintners move the frothy liquid into tightly sealed bottles, which are twice the pressure of a car tire, five and a half regular atmospheres. This forces the extra CO2 to dissolve into the liquid and combine with the water to become carbonic acid for a little while. When you pop the cork, the unstable carbonic acid comes out of solution, causing CO2 to come out of solution with it, an endothermic reaction, that is to say it cools itself off, and voila, celebration time, come on. That vapor that you see over the mouth of the bottle is that endothermic reaction, creating a pocket of condensed water vapor. It's kind of like seeing your breath in the winter. 
So the bubbles themselves are just tiny pockets of dissolved carbon dioxide left over from yeast fermentation. And they're important because they affect how we experience the flavor and aroma of any effervescent drink. It's kind of like a tiny fountain. It stirs the beverage and adds tiny particles of goodness to the air around the glass. Eventually, the air pockets dissolve, as does the amount of CO2 in your champagne, causing the bubbles to slow down. But what is it that makes a bubbly drink so enjoyable in the first place? Most other animals hate bubbles in their drinks because it's a sign of food spoilage. But the NIH made a study of bubbly water to see what makes it cool, makes it poppin', and they found an enzyme on the sour receptors of our tongue called carbonic anhydrase 4. The bubbles stimulate the sour buds and the somatosensory system. The somatosensory system normally activates for temperature or pain, touch or taste. So you'd think sour buds plus pain that doesn't seem right. For some reason, the dual activation of the buds and the nerves creates a pleasurable sensation for the brain instead of the sour, painful one. And that's kind of weird. Scientists with the NIH think it might be because the bubbles are made of carbon dioxide, so they trigger that CA4 differently. Normally, the enzyme helps us convert carbon dioxide and water to bicarbonate and protons, so the body can use that to balance acids and bases in the bloodstream. This was sort of an unexpected tickle, and kind of like spicy foods and how they trigger pain even though we kind of like it. Do you like your beverages with or without bubbles? How are you celebrating your new year? Let us know down in the comments. Make sure you subscribe for more D News, and thanks for watching. This episode of D News is brought to you by the Toyota Prius. Let's lead the way. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes you. A lyrical way to put getting drunk. So how does alcohol actually take a hold of us? No matter what your poison is, booze all contains the same molecule that messes with your mind, ethanol. And that's where the party gets started, or rather slows down. Actually both, it's complicated. Ethanol slows your brain down by binding to two kinds of receptors, those for GABA and NMDA. GABA inhibits your behavior, so when ethanol binds to the GABA receptor, the neural message firing slows down, making you feel more calm, relaxed, and loosening you up. Ethanol blocks NMDA receptors, which makes you feel tired and can interfere with your memory. The more ethanol you have, the less you'll remember, and this is what can cause blackouts. At the same-ish time, ethanol causes your brain to release the stimulants norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol, which hype you up. The more you drink, the higher your heart rate will be. Your airways open up and send more oxygen to your brain, which enhances your senses. You're now more alert to sounds and light. Prime rave conditions, am I right? Also being released in the mix is everybody's favorite feel-good chemical, dopamine, which tells you you're having a good time. Now onto why alcohol might lead you to make some bad decisions. The arrival of ethanol also gums up pathways that keep your brain from getting the energy it needs to operate at full speed. This impairs your thought processes that might lead you to think you're an awesome dancer and make you cut a rug at your office holiday party. Meanwhile, ethanol acts like a bouncer and keeps other hormones out. One left outside is an antidiuretic hormone, which means you feel like you have to pee more often, or perhaps that's from all the water you should be drinking with your booze to keep hydrated. Oh, and other parts of the brain in charge of muscle movement get slowed down as well, so might be to blame for that stumble on your way to the bathroom. After that drink crosses the blood-brain barrier, the functions that keep you alive, like pumping blood through your body, breathing, and body temperature, can go haywire. This is one of the most dangerous ways in which alcohol interferes with your brain. Ethanol can even mess with your body temperature regulator, causing you to feel warmer, which is why you might feel fine when it's below freezing out. Eventually, all these stimulant effects, norepinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, wear off. 
But remember that GABA and NMDA we talked about? Their effects have been building up this whole time, meaning you're left weary and forgetful and just generally slower. So when you begin to sober up, you're left feeling pretty tired and out of it. Which is why it's always best to drink in moderation. Alcohol has a unique effect on each of us, so it's a good idea to know your limits. Having a full stomach before drinking will slow down the ethanol absorption through the stomach walls. With an empty stomach, it can take less than a minute for the ethanol to zip through the bloodstream and reach your brain. Fatty foods take longer to digest, which slows down the alcohol absorption. Same thing for sugary mixers like soda or cranberry juice, which is why you'll feel ethanol's effects quicker when you have a mixer of diet soda. So now you know how alcohol can affect you after you toast off this long year. Speaking of which, we'd like to ring in the new year with a special tradition, our annual audience survey. We want to hear what you think about the show. What do you love? What do you want more of? What can be improved? Let us know everything. The link for the survey is in the description below. Happy New Year and thanks for watching. For humans, food and drink are more than just a necessity for survival. They're a huge part of our culture and our history, shaping our lives on a daily basis. And alcohol has perhaps had the strongest influence on us. Pun intended. From soft alcohols like beers and wines to hard liquors like whiskey and vodka, booze comes in many shapes and styles and can be found all over the world. But how did humans discover alcohol and how is it made? Thanks to some microscopic organisms, some time, and some crafty chemistry, we've gotten pretty good at creating our own hooch. The alcohol we're describing today is ethanol, which is actually just one type of alcohol, but it's the only one that's safe to drink in large quantities because we've developed the ability to metabolize or break down and eliminate its toxic components. Ethanol occurs in nature thanks to fermentation the process of breaking sugars down into ethanol and carbon dioxide. And humans, and our non-human ancestors, have been able to metabolize ethanol for a really long time. From examining our DNA, some scientists estimate that our ancestors developed the ability to metabolize ethanol around 10 million years ago, way before we were mixing our own cocktails. Back then, we hadn't even split off from the ancestors of chimpanzees. But that adaptation could have been helpful for our early primate ancestors by allowing them to eat fermented fruit without getting sick. Evolving humans must have enjoyed what they felt when they ate the fermented fruits, because figuring out how to create our own fermented beverages quickly became a centerpiece of human culture. In fact, there are some researchers who believe that our desire for alcohol is what drove us to develop agriculture, which would have given us constant access to the grains and starches needed to produce our own booze. The earliest known evidence of the deliberate creation of an alcoholic beverage is 9,000 years old, discovered in some pottery in the Yellow River Valley in China. This drink was some sort of wine and contained rice, honey, and grapes. In 2005, researchers actually recreated the drink based on a chemical analysis, and apparently it tasted, quote, very intriguing. Archaeologists think that around the same time people were originally making this stuff, barley beers and grape wines were being produced in the Middle East. People probably made those early drinks by leaving fruits and grains in covered containers for long periods of time. Eventually, they'd open the containers and the liquid inside would be alcoholic. But for thousands of years, no one knew exactly why this was happening. Thanks to modern science, we've got it pretty much figured out. Beers are produced by fermentation, which comes from the Latin ferwere, meaning to boil. Which makes sense, because the mixture of grains and water does bubble during the process. And a beer really only needs four basic components, grain, water, yeast, and hops. Different varieties of these components mixed in different ratios can give each beer a distinct flavor. There are also different ways to do the beer brewing itself. But here's how the process generally works. The first step in making beer involves cooking grains in water, which produces a mix called the mash. The heat activates enzymes within the grains and begins to break 
the starches down into simple sugars. Different grains are used for different kinds of beer. Dark roasted grains are used for darker, heavier beers like stouts, while light grains are used for light beers like wits and pilsners. Once they've all been cooked down, the grains are removed from the pot and the remaining liquid is boiled. At this point, the liquid is called the wort, and it's during this step that the primary flavoring element of the beer is added. Hops. Hops are actually flowers, harvested from a climbing vine called Humulus lipulus. Beers have always been flavored with herbal mixtures, and we're not sure when or why hops became the herb of choice, but it was first noted as being part of brewing sometime in the 9th century CE. Adding hops to beer helped balance the sweet flavors from the grains with an acidic kick, but more importantly, the hops kept it from spoiling, so the beer lasted longer. We now know that hops produce antibacterial compounds called alpha and beta acids, which help keep the beer free of bacteria and support the growth and survival of the yeast. These Acids mainly give beer its distinctive bitterness, but different varieties of hops can also give beers citrusy, floral, or even piney notes. After the boil, the liquid is rapidly cooled to prevent bacterial contamination and oxidation, which can change the taste of the beer. Once the wort is cooled, the yeast is added to begin the fermentation process. Yeast, in this case a particular variety called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, is a microscopic single-celled fungus. Yeast rely on sugars for energy, so they eat up the sugars in the wort and spit out carbon dioxide and ethanol as waste products. The Carbon dioxide is why the liquid bubbles, and the ethanol is why there's alcohol in beer. During the first phase, the primary fermentation, there's a lot of yeast hard at work. All that waste carbon dioxide is allowed to escape the container, while the ethanol is left behind. After a while, usually a minimum of two weeks, most of the sugar has been consumed, and most of the yeast is dead. In some cases, the beer is transferred to bottles with a small amount of sugar to help fuel the remaining yeast through the last step secondary fermentation. The beer is then tightly capped and the carbon dioxide and ethanol produced within the container are preserved, finally turning the liquid inside into the fizzy, intoxicating beverage that so many of us love. Wine production is similar to beer making in a lot of ways. It's just that instead of grains, wines use fruit to produce alcohol. And as you probably know if you've ever tasted a $3 bottle of wine, different varieties of grapes and how they're prepared can dramatically affect the flavor of the wine. First, the grapes are crushed. Back in the day, people used to stomp on the grapes in big tubs, but now it's generally done with specialized mechanical crushers. The resulting mixture of skins, pulp, and juices is called the must. Whether the wine is a red or a white usually depends on this step. White wines are often made from green grapes, and red wines are generally made from purple grapes, but the color of the grape doesn't automatically determine what type of wine it will be. In fact, purple grapes can be used to produce both kinds of wine. Leaving the dark grape skins sitting in the must will lead to a red wine, while separating the juices from the skins and pulp quickly will lead to a white wine. Those dark grape skins also contain tannins, compounds that a chemist would call polyphenols. They're made of lots of connected rings of carbons attached to an oxygen and a hydrogen. These compounds give red wine its characteristic dryness and help red wines age well, smoothing and mellowing the flavor over time. As with beer, the key component to turning grapes into wine is the presence of yeast. In the old days, naturally occurring wild yeast on the grapes mashed into the must by winemakers' feet would kickstart the process. These days, winemakers sterilize the must and add their own specially selected yeast for better control over the wine's flavor. And just like with the beer, the yeast converts the grape's sugars into ethanol and carbon dioxide. After fermentation, the yeast is killed off or filtered out and the liquid is clarified to remove particles that might affect the taste or appearance of the wine. The wine may then be aged in wooden barrels for a few months to a few years, which gives the drink more flavors. Finally, it's bottled and shipped off for consumption, ready to be sipped by venophiles everywhere. So these soft alcohols, as it turns out, are pretty easy to make by mistake. But what if you wanted to throw a really crazy party? How do we make hard liquor? High alcohol content beverages like vodka and whiskey require an additional step. 
distillation. Distillation is a process of deliberate evaporation, cooling, and condensation that produces purified liquids. Creating hard liquors this way takes advantage of the fact that ethanol has a lower boiling point than water, so it turns into a gas at a lower temperature than water does. Just like with beer and wine, hard liquors begin with a fermentation step. Different fruits, grains, and starches can be used to create this initial brew depending on the liquor. For example, potatoes are generally used for vodka, while bourbon is made from corn, rum comes from sugarcane, and tequila is made from agave. The yeast gobbles up all of those sugars and produces ethanol and carbon dioxide, but the liquid has a relatively low alcohol content, around 10 to 15 percent. So, to make the liquor truly hard, we have to purify some of that liquid to give it a higher alcohol content. The liquid is transferred to the still, where it's heated inside the pot until the components with lower boiling points begin to boil off. As the solution vaporizes, the temperature is increased very slowly, pushing the other compounds to boil at the appropriate temperatures. The boiled-off vapor rises to the top of the pot and passes into the distillation column, where specialized plates cool the vapor and cause it to condense and drop back into the pot. This gives distillers precise control over the spirits as they pass up through the column, allowing them to make adjustments to the contents and flavor of the drink. The compounds with the lowest boiling point are able to reach the top of the column and pass into the line arm, a horizontal pipe that condenses the vapor back into liquid so it can be collected. This distillate is collected in stages, with each stage kept separate by its boiling points. The first portion of the distillate, called the heads, contains the most volatile compounds, the liquids with the lowest boiling point. These include acetone and esters, and small amounts of these compounds are saved to add flavor to the final product. The second portion of the distillate is called the heart, and it's the most important part because it contains all of that intoxicating ethanol. The heart is collected, mixed with some of the heads, and usually further modified until it reaches the desired flavor profile, which sounds really strange out of context. Some of these modifications involve flavoring the liquid directly, like by adding juniper berries to gin. They can also involve redistillation, passing the distillate through the process all over again. And of course, hard liquors can be modified through aging. Like wine, the type of container a spirit is aged in can have a significant effect on its behavior. Bourbon is aged in newly cut and freshly charred oak barrels, imparting a rich, smoky flavor to the drink. Scotch, on the other hand, is aged in used barrels, usually in barrels that have been previously used for aging bourbon or sherry. Different varieties of the same kind of spirit can age for different amounts of time too, like how white or blanco tequila isn't aged, but reposado or rested tequilas have been aged in oak for at least two months. So there are a lot of ways to turn that distilled ethanol into many different kinds of liquors available around the world. Scientists are working in breweries and distilleries every day to combine these scientific techniques in new and interesting ways, creating super bitter beers and unusual kinds of liquors. And all of these beverages are part of our culture and our history, from the earliest beers to the latest developments in distillation technology. Thanks for watching this episode of SciShow brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. If you want to help support this show, just go to patreon.com slash scishow, and don't forget to go to youtube.com slash scishow and subscribe. So whenever he'd eat carbohydrates, the extra yeast in his digestive system would start fermenting those carbs into alcohol, which would end up in his bloodstream. He was literally getting drunk on bread. The doctor Happy New Year's, everyone, and if you are drinking tonight, please be smart and be careful.